Good morning again. Good morning. I want to welcome Dan Lau, those of you that were here four years ago, one of our uh, worship leaders that was a part of the church for a few years. He's here, so wave to Dan, give him a hug and a kiss if you know him. If not, that would be weird, so don't. But, um, I want to get you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4 today. We're continuing our series that we've called Why Jesus, and what we're doing, tracking along the common objections to the Christian faith uh, that Tim Keller talks about in his book, The Reason for God. Uh, We're kind of going to different texts and not following that book exactly, uh, but we'll continue to have those books out in the hallway if you want to purchase that book or donate for that book, right, where the IRS told us we can't sell things, right, because we're a church. So if you want to Give us money to help pay for those books. You can do that in the hallway or just take the books too. You can do that. Um, So we've got books that are apologetics and apologetics is basically uh, studying the reasons for our faith, understanding better how our faith is coherent, how it makes sense, understanding how to give a defense for it. And so we want to encourage you and what we're praying for through the season is for you to grow and you're deepening in the faith that it would make more sense to you, that you would feel more free in sharing it with other people. And that's just really kind of what our hope is and what our prayer is through the series. Um, as we look at these different objections, the objection we want to deal with today is the problem of rules. Okay? Um, now, this is going to be difficult because I believe we have really a divided uh, congregation here. People that are here, and I think this is a sign of health, but we've got some people here that are like, rules? A problem? What are you talking about? I love rules, right? I mean, there's some of you that just, you love rules, and rules give structure and safety to your life, right? And so for you, what I want to press on you a bit this morning is that you you can't find life in the rules, but we're to find life in the one who makes the rules. Uh, And so that's one of the difficulties for those of us that love rules, is slipping into thinking the rules themselves give us life. And then there's some of you that, that are more like my temperament. I, I don't like rules. I'll just give you a little sample of how I grew up so that you can kind of understand my, my neurotic behavior. For those of you that know me well, this will make more sense. But uh, my mom was an art teacher, and she went to art school in the 60s. And so I was not allowed to use coloring books as a child. Do you know, those of you that know me, you probably understand this. It's because she didn't want me to uh, train myself to color inside the lines, right? Because that would stifle my creativity. A lot of you are just like, that doesn't even make sense, right? But, but that, that, that's the way I was raised. Creativity was a core value. We, we did a lot of art projects, but it was always a blank sheet of paper. And, and so those, those boundaries that were there for a coloring book, that was, that was too much structure. She wanted to raise me to be creative and to color outside the lines. And so I tend to be one of those people that, that doesn't like rules. So when I saw this concept uh, as an objection to the Christian faith, it made sense to me. It clicked for me. Um, another way to state it would be morality, right? A- as Americans and as modern people, we, we don't like the idea of summing, someone telling us how to live. We don't want someone to tell us that this one thing I like or that other thing I don't like, that it doesn't fit with, with their set of rules. And so what we're going to argue biblically is that God does indeed have the right as the sovereign creator of the universe to tell us how to live our life. Um, but also we want to understand... Uh, how to talk about that in a more helpful way. And I think John 4 is a great example because in John 4, we've got Jesus talking to someone who is basically a rule breaker, talking to them about the heart of the issue. And so we've got a great example here of what it looks like. And so this is a model for us 
um, I think what it's going to do is it's going to challenge those of us that are rule breakers to consider, hey, maybe I need to rethink the rules. Maybe I do want to live in line with God's rules. For those of us that are more religious and tend to be rule keepers, it's going to challenge us in how we see those rules, how we relate to God, and how we relate to other people, right? Teaching us, I think, how to not be a judgmental people. Even though we might believe in the rules, we're called not to be judgmental about the rules. And so how do we, how do we balance that out, right? So I think, I think John 4 is going to be a great example for us this morning. Um, if you'll start with me, we'll start in verse 7. But I just want to set the stage that Jesus is in this passage. He's going to be talking to a Samaritan woman who is living in what we would call sexual sin. She's had serial relationships, been married multiple times, and now is living with a man that's not her husband. And so when we talk about the rules this morning, we're, we're going to consider the biblical rules, the biblical standards, the universal standards of morality that are uh, in agreement between both Old Testament and New Testament. We're not talking about the ceremonial rules of the Old Testament, right? Because Hebrews tells us those are fulfilled in Jesus. We're not talking about the national rules of a nation state, Israel, because that nation is not who the church is to be. The church is a universal multi-tribe, multi-nation organization, right? So we're no longer as Gentiles to fulfill the national rules of Israel or the ceremonial rules of Israel, but we are to live by the moral rules of the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament. And so that's kind of the standard when we talk about rules, when we talk about morality and um, God's plan for our life, that, that's kind of what we're going to go to as our standard. And then what we're going to see here is how Jesus deals with that with someone that's not living by the rules. What does this look like? So picking up in John 4, verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. He didn't have anything to draw the water with. So in verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? That was culturally taboo. The Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. And in parentheses, it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So you can see she's a skeptic, right? Like, yeah, come on. Then he says in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Let me pray for us here, and we'll look at this in more detail. God, we we ask that you would teach us today. And God, I pray for those this morning who have hearts of pride in their rule-keeping. I pray for those this morning who have hearts of uh, skepticism and fear in their rule-breaking. God, we pray that you would help us to know you, the one who is the ultimate rule Help us to know your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just two weeks ago, a dear friend of mine and mentor was at the doctor. Uh, He was seeing an eye doctor, and his doctor was actually a very good friend of his. Someone he loved dearly. They've been friends for 20, 30 years. Um, He's at the doctor having his eye checked out, and the doctor says, hmm. And you know, you don't really like to hear that when a doctor just 
Mm. He, he pauses. Friend's a little worried. What's going on? Well, I'm not sure. I need to check this. He goes out. He comes back in. He does some more tests. He looks some more. Because, yeah, this isn't looking good. He goes out again. He has someone else consult. Someone else comes and looks at it. And he says, yeah, we, we need to have this checked out. We need to send you to a, a cancer specialist because I think this is a type of cancer in your eye. And I wanted to use that as an illustration to set up the concept of rules and morality um, for the sake of illustrating this concept that in, in our culture today, we live in a place where it, it's pressed into us that it's never right to tell someone that there's something wrong because we don't believe in right and wrong anymore. We don't, we don't really believe in rules culturally in a broader sense. But when we talk about it in a doctor's office, it just seems so clear and so black and white that it would be crazy for that doctor to say, well, I don't want to upset him, so I'm not going to say anything, right? I mean, that would just be stupid because that's the doctor's job is to, to point out. That's why he came to the doctor. And, and, and so it seems ridiculous, but that's often how we live our lives is we... I don't want to upset somebody, I don't want to, or I don't want to be judgmental, or, you know, I want him to like me, so I'm not going to say anything about this thing I see in his eye. But he loved him, right? He loved his friends, so when he saw something that was dangerous in his eye, he, he told him about it. Because loving him ultimately, last week, led to my friend having that, that eye removed. Um, a lot of you have been, been praying for my friend. He's the, the pastor at our mother church, the church that started us in Temple. Um, he had his eye removed this week. Many of you have been praying for him, and we, we appreciate that. His uh, surgery went really well. But ultimately, love, the love of that doctor, led, led to something painful happening in his life. Something painful. He had to have removed from his, from his life for his long-term good. And, and so... Kind of the idea is that, that God knows better than we do how we should live our life. And there are things that we're going to want to keep in our life because they're dear to us, because they feel like they're satisfying, like they're feeding, like they're quenching our thirst. I talked earlier in the service, I've got like serious dry mouth today, which is ironic because here we are with this passage about, you know, being thirsty, right? So I just think God has a sense of humor and he's trying to help me to really understand this today. We have a deep, deep thirst that goes beyond a physical thirst, and we try to satisfy that in other things. We try to satisfy that in other things. And if we really love people well, we'll point them to the only place where that thirst can ultimately be satisfied. We all try to fill it in other ways. And God says, Jesus says, that he's the source of true satisfaction. And so the first thing I want us to understand as we consider this, as it plays out in our interaction with people that don't like all the rules of Christianity and the morality of Christianity is our posture towards people like that. So um, whether you think this way or not, just kind of put this hat on for a minute. Consider yourself as if you were a rule keeper, someone who loved God's rules. How then are you going to interact with people that don't? What Jesus shows is he shows a kindness towards them. So the, the first point I want us to look at is kindness towards rule breakers. Jesus shows sympathy, compassion, and even vulnerability towards rule breaker. He doesn't, he doesn't keep his distance, but he, he enters into this person's world. And, and what I want you to understand is you look back at chapter four, um, look at verse one in chapter four. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
it says in parentheses, although it wasn't really Jesus' disciples were doing the baptizing, but generally this one and two is trying to set up the Pharisees, the religious leaders, noticed that Jesus was having a bigger following now even than John the Baptist. And so there was conflict. And so Jesus decides to retreat for a little while. We see this as we read all the Gospels. We see a pattern of Jesus interacting with the religious people and then him kind of retreating and going to the less religious areas and preaching there and coming back, interacting with the religious leaders again. And so he kind of bounces, bringing his gospel of the kingdom to the religious leaders who didn't like it for their own reasons, and then the non-religious people, right? And so this is one of those retreats where geographically he's leaving the religious center of Jerusalem, the capital, and he's going out to another area. But this is really interesting in verse 3. It says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, right? So kind of where his people were um, in this region that was still Jewish, uh, but it was kind of less religious, right? It was more of the kind of middle of the road area where Jesus operated around Galilee. In verse 4 it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, had to pass through Samaria means that was the straight way to get there. Be like, if I have to go to Kansas, you would say... I have to pass through Oklahoma, right? For those of you that know geography. But what if Oklahoma people make me disgusted and sick, right? Then then I would take the road around Oklahoma. Now, no offense to you from Oklahoma. I've got people from Oklahoma, okay? So I don't hate you. But as an illustration, if I was like the Jews in that day, the Jews would go around Samaria to get places. They were so disgusted by the Samaritans. The Samaritans were both... Uh, physically, like racially and religiously half-breeds. They had, they had intermarried, they had mixed with other people, right? So they weren't pure Jews by race anymore, and they'd also intermarried with other people religiously. So their religion was a mixture, right? So, so think of the racism that our, our nation has struggled with. We'll add on top of that, like, religious disputes as well, and there was this just mix of of hatred and disgust there, that they just thought these people were not pure. Um, they didn't worship God the same way the Israelites did, but they worshiped, you know, they used some of the books of the Old Testament, but not all of them. And so there was disagreement. It was a mixture there. So the Jewish people would just walk around Samaria. They would go around it. Uh, just like if going to Kansas from here, it'd be like if we said, we can't go into Oklahoma, we got to go around it because those people are so bad. Well, that's what they did. And so what's interesting to me is that Jesus broke the cultural rules of his day to engage someone. But Jesus didn't throw out all the rules, right? Jesus still, you look at Matthew 5, he said, we're to keep the moral law, we're to keep the rules of God. But he repeatedly broke the cultural rules, right? The culture said, let's not even talk to those bad people. Jesus said, no, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to go right through their town. So he broke the cultural rules without breaking the moral rules. Do you see the difference? And I believe we're, we're called to do the same thing. I think we're called to be like Jesus and break those cultural boundaries and our desire to bring the good news of the rule maker himself and help people find uh, the beauty that we might find in keeping the rules of God because we know God and love God. We have to break cultural rules sometimes to interact with these people. Because what happens is religious people, the more that you learn the rules of God, the more that you walk with God, sometimes what can happen is you begin to find... Uh, your health and your life in being a rule keeper and being different, right? So it starts off innocently like, uh, these friends are always getting me drunk, so I'm not going to hang out with them. Probably a good idea, right? But So what starts off innocently then becomes, I never ever talk to people that don't believe the same thing as me anymore. 
And so your, your road diverges a little bit here, and you look down the road, and you don't, you don't have any friends that don't believe the same thing as you anymore. In Jesus, we see this thing where he keeps pressing in and pursuing relationship with people that don't believe the same things he believes. And I think that's a model for us. I think God wants us to connect with people in the same way Jesus does. And, and so it says he had to pass through Samaria. We, we know a lot of Jews wouldn't have done that. They would have gone around. But he decided, no, I'm going to go in. I'm going to go through this place. I'm going to connect with these people. Verse, four says, or verse 5 says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this is always hard for us to wrap our brain around. We believe Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. So Jesus got tired. Jesus napped. Jesus ate. He drank. He got thirsty. So here we see Jesus being wearied. He's tired. His disciples are going to go get food. He's like, yeah, go on. I'm just going to hang out here. I'm just tired. I'm just going to rest. And he sits by the well. Verse 7 says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He had no way to draw water. He didn't have equipment. Maybe his disciples had that equipment. We're not really sure exactly. So he's asking for her help. Says his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So normally his, his dudes would have helped him, right? But they weren't there. They'd gone. And so he's asking her for help. This rule breaker, right? This person that his culture has taught him he should hate. His culture has said you shouldn't even talk to her. They didn't talk to women in public. They didn't talk to Sumerians for sure. They didn't talk to Sumerian, Samaritans that were living in sin also. So there's all these things pressing against Jesus, these cultural boundaries that he breaks. And he says, I'm going to talk to this person. And he even shares his vulnerability with her, right? He shares his need with her. And I think this is a beautiful example of how we should interact with people that believe differently than us. We should interact with them like real people, like if they have something we need, we could ask for it. But real friendship, real interaction here, showing them our vulnerability, being real with them. Jesus wasn't afraid to display that. He said, I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I, I have needs. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him... And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she's defensive. She knows that Jews hate her. She's standing on her cultural pride. We have Jacob's well. So it's something that these people had. You know, the Jews said, you're not real Jews. But they said... No, we're connected to our father, Jacob. We're connected to Israel. We have his well that he dug here, right? So they're kind of standing on their cultural symbols of we're okay, we're a good people, we're the right people, so this is what we have going for us. And she's answering him as a skeptic. You don't have anything to draw water from. And hey, we, we know what we're doing. This is Jacob's well here, right? Like, like back off, okay? Who are you talking about living water and all this stuff? And, and so she kind of presses him back. Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. It's like, yeah, I mean, you've, you've got a well, right? That's a real well. It's good water. But that water, you're going you're gonna to be thirsty again. You can drink from that. You'll be thirsty again later. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so she says, Okay, well, if you've got that kind of water, give it to me. If you, I mean, if you've got water where I'm never going to thirst again, bring me that water. I want to point out, well, I've got a picture here of water. This is terrible. It's making me more thirsty. No. <laughs> ah, all right, that's supposed to make you thirsty. It's not working on you, I guess, but it's working on me. This, this is a picture of cool water to remind us that uh, Jesus both was vulnerable and shared his need of thirst with her, but he also pointed her to something greater. And so what I would say is that this is an example to us of how to interact with people that don't believe like we do. First of all, we've got the example of Jesus actually going into the neighborhood that everybody else told him he shouldn't go into, right? So my first challenge for us is do... Do we have space in our lives where we interact with people that think we're crazy and don't believe what we believe? Do you have those friends in your life? Do you have those interactions? Where are those opportunities for you? Are you pursuing those opportunities, right? Are you going after those opportunities? Are you being vulnerable with those people? Are you sharing your actual thirst with those people? Is it a real friendship or is it just people where you swing in and you know drop a Bible bomb and then run back out? Are, are these people that you you really interact with, right? I mean, do you, do you talk to them? Do you have a friendship? You're thirsty? Hey, do you have a drink? Do you have that kind of interaction with them? And then do you point them to the, to the living water? Do you point them to the ultimate help as well? Because, as I said, we, we kind of like go to extremes, right? And it's easy for us to become the kind of people that never even talk to people that don't believe like us. But we could also go to the extreme where we have these very authentic, real friendships, but we never point them beyond the tangible water to the living water, to the deeper water? Do we, do we take that step like Jesus does and say, hey, there's, there's more. I mean, this is great. We've got good friendship here. This is a great well. Good things we're enjoying together. But there's more. There's more. Jesus can solve your ultimate thirst. I think one of the best places to start is just praying and to realize that it's not all up to us when we have these kind of friendships. Do you, do you just pray for your friends? Like, God, help my friend. Help me to be a good friend. Ask God by his spirit to lead you in these friendships because it's not a formula, right? That we, we don't know how to really do this. We have to listen to the spirit so that we know what to say and he'll give us the words to speak. The next thing I want us to think about is the heart, the heart of rule breaking. Where does, where does rule breaking come from, right? Like if we think God wants us to live with a certain morality and a certain set of rules, why do we live outside of that? A lot of us, we, we've grown up maybe in the Bible Belt, and so we kind of have a loose sense of biblical morality. This is what it looks like. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, just growing up in America, you generally have an awareness, right, of Christian morality, what right and wrong means from a Christian standpoint, from a biblical standpoint. So then why do we live outside of it? Jesus surfaces that for us. He helps us to understand. Why, why would I ever step out of what, at one point, I thought were the rules of right and wrong? What led me to the path of saying, okay, forget those rules, or at least forget this rule. I'll keep the other ones, but that rule is too hard to keep. What, what leads us in that direction? How does this take place? What's the heart of rule breaking? So back to verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this ongoing thirst satisfaction that's happening. Verse 15, the woman said to her, sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
So she's still a little confused, right? It seems like she's saying, so then I don't have to come get the physical water here. Give me your magic water. Jesus is like, well, that's not exactly what it means. You're still going to need the physical water too, but there's the spiritual satisfaction that you can have in the living water. And so Jesus helps to surface where she's going to satisfy that spiritual need in her life. She's spiritually thirsty. How is she satisfying that spiritual thirst? Well, he, he surfaces it. He says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. He knows her situation. It's like, I know, I know how you've been satisfying your thirst. She says in verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. It's like, yeah, we've, we've nailed it. There, there's an issue. That, that's where you're going for living water. You get how to satisfy your physical thirst. You satisfy your physical thirst with physical water. Your spiritual thirst, your spiritual emptiness, your spiritual hunger, you're trying to satisfy that void, that hole of love in this string of men. And that's not really what it's designed for. You can't have a good relationship if you're not already satisfying your spiritual thirst in God. The only way we can really love each other as people is if we already know that God is the one to satisfy our souls. When we know that, then we have something to give to a spouse. He's saying you've had this string of relationships and, and you're not even married to the guy you're with now. He's not really your husband. But that's where you're going. That's how you've been trying to satisfy your spiritual thirst. She changes the subject. Look at what she says in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So now she's going to ask him a theological question. <laughs> She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, he brings it back around. She's trying to get off the subject. All right, this is getting a little weird. He's talking about my relationships. I see you're a prophet. Let's talk about a religious dispute. My people say worship on this mountain. Your people say worship in Jerusalem. What's the deal? And Jesus brings it back to the heart. What's the heart of our rule breaking? What's the heart of our rebellion? Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying the hour is coming very soon where the, the place really won't matter. He says, verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he affirms the theological dispute. He says the Jews are the source of true doctrine. It comes from our scriptures, our holy books, but he says the time is coming where the location, though, is going to be secondary. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus said, I'm, I'm the one that's going to satisfy your thirst. He said, you've, you've been trying to satisfy your thirst in this string of relationships. And I know for, for us, we all try to satisfy our spiritual thirst in, in some way. And it's often other than Jesus. Even when we've come to a relationship with Jesus, we're still tempted to try to satisfy that thirst in other ways. We know Jesus is the truth. We begin following Jesus, and then we slip back into 
habits or maybe even new things that didn't lure us away before and think, well, maybe really that's going to satisfy my spiritual thirst, my emptiness. For this woman, it was an issue of sexual sin. She was thinking that these multiple relationships could satisfy her. That, that's a really common issue in our culture. We have a culture that, that tries a variety of sexual ways to satisfy our spiritual hunger. And so my question would be for you, is there some kind of sexual sin or maybe some other uh, type of rule breaking where you believe, I kind of like the idea of rules, but I just, I don't trust Jesus that much. I need this other thing to save me. I can't live without it. So I've, I've got to break this rule because really Jesus can't take care of me. Breaking this rule is going to be the thing that's going to take care of me. That, that's what's going to make me happy. That's what is going to satisfy me. I mean, that's the source of all rule breaking. That's the heart of all rule breaking, where we say, I just don't trust you, God. I trust you on these nine, but not that one. I trust you on these eight, but not those two. Because we don't really think he's going to take care of us. The illustration I've used a million times is the Pringle can, right? Uh, We've talked about the monkey trap, the Pringle can. Any of you, if your hands are as big as mine or larger, you understand what I'm talking about if you've ever eaten Pringles. You put your hand in the Pringle can, but if you bend your fingers to grab the Pringle, you can't get it back out, right? So you have to turn the whole thing over and dump it out, and then all the crumbs come out. It's a big mess, right? Monkeys, they use use the same concept to, to capture monkeys in places where monkeys live. That's what people tell me anyway. They, they put these little uh, compartments, boxes or coconuts or whatever where they can carve out a hole that's just big enough for a monkey to slip his hand into. They put something shiny in there that the monkey would want. When he grabs onto it, he can't pull his hand back out. And, and so I use that as an illustration of the heart of our rule breaking. When we're breaking one of God's rules of morality, we're saying, I need that, God. I can't let go of that. If I let go of that, I'm going to die, God. Don't take that away from me. And so what I want you to understand is that that then becomes our God, right? That's our Savior. When we're holding on to that thing, whatever it is that you're clinging on to, whatever it is that I cling on to in my sin, when I say the sin is better than following God's rules, I'm saying that's going to save me. I've got to have it. In, in the world of sexual sin, I think it's, it's very clear. It's, it's really clear, I think, with the homosexual issue these days. There's been just a drumbeat lately where it's just been kind of drummed into our head that if, if you have that temptation, the solution is not to ask God to help you to resist. The solution is to say, that's who you are, and you must have that to be happy. So it's really blatant with, with homosexuality because it's, it's made into an identity, Right? And what I want to encourage you with, if you struggle with homosexual temptation, I want to encourage you that really, that's just like any other temptation. We are all the same. We are all tempted. And so whatever I'm tempted towards, whatever you're tempted towards, when I say I must have that or I will die, I'm saying I know better than God does. And whatever desires I have are more important than what God says I should do in my life. And what I want to plead with you about is the same thing. I think Jesus is telling this woman is that he's ultimately going to be the one that's going to satisfy us. And so when I fall into sin, when I'm tempted, I'm saying, this is my God. This is my Savior. This is going to help me. But Jesus says he's the living water. And so the the heart of our rule breaking is thinking something else is going to save me. 
And so rule keeping doesn't save us. Jesus keeps us. Jesus is the one that keeps us. He's the one that saves us. We, we keep rules because we've come to believe that he's our savior. Does that make sense? And so this is really where so many of us that are religious go haywire, go off the reservation here where we're like, we're thinking the rule keeping is saving us. No, the rule keeping doesn't save us. God saves us. He's the one that satisfies us. And so what's really insidious is that then keeping religious culture, keeping the rules of our religious order, whatever it may be, that, that can begin to be that same thing we're holding on to in the coconut like the monkey that can't get his hand back out, right? We're saying, well, these are the kinds of people we are. This is how we do, this is what our music should be like at church, or this is how church buildings should be shaped, or this is the, the way that our people live. And, and we start to confuse our culture with God's real basic standards of morality. I mean, the Ten Commandments is a pretty short list. I mean, it's, it's not a long list, but we add to it, right? We add all these other things to it. It's pretty basic. He has some very basic rules of morality, and those are going to look different in different cultures, right? But they're still very clear. I just want to define sexually, when it, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to uh, the whole idea of sex, that God says that's something that he's designed that is transcendental and amazing and awesome, but it's for the gluing and the bonding of a man who is absolutely committed to a woman in a lifetime of marriage. That's, that's the biblical definition of what marriage is, but more than that's the biblical definition of sex. It's really secondary to that commitment. And it's this joy that God gives us to bond together in marriage. But because it is such a powerful thing, it is such a powerful bonding agent, we use it in a lot of different ways. We use it in a lot of other ways that God said, well, that's not, that's not the way it's supposed to be used. And so I know, because I've talked to you, I've counseled with you, I know that, that many of you struggle with using it in multiple different ways, right? And I just want to challenge you again that the heart here is that God loves you. And so when you come to believe that He loves you, that He loves you so much that He died for you, then you're going to be willing to try to keep his rules, even though it's painful. Amen. Even though you may feel like, that's just not me though, right? I just, there's this desire I have and I just feel like my thirst is going to be satisfied in this other way. Jesus is saying, no, your thirst can only be satisfied in him. And when we deal with that, then that'll help us to deal with whatever rules we may be breaking. And I mean, the common issues are People that come in and out of our church here struggle with. We struggle with just being faithful to the spouse God's given us, right? We have this fantasy that lifelong commitment's just not enough. If I really want to be happy, I need something else. So we want to get rid of this one, try another one. And that's, that's one of the problems that we have. We struggle with pornography, one of the common issues that men struggle with, thinking that this object and the, the beauty, this natural beauty that God's made the world with, you know, that's a beautiful thing. A, a woman, that was God's idea, right? All men think women are beautifully beautiful generally, but when we objectify and fantasize about these women, lust about these other women, then it, then it becomes a, a twisting of, of God's design. We struggle with homosexuality, we struggle with faithfulness in our marriage, we struggle with thinking, well, I'll just live with this person for a while, try it out. Maybe we'll get married, maybe we won't. There's all kinds of varieties of ways we experiment with sexuality. 
And I just want to challenge you, encourage you that, that God loves you more than you do. God loves you more than you do. And he cares for you. And, and when you realize that, again, don't, don't keep the rules to impress him. But come to understand how much he really loves you, how much he really cares for you, so much that he died for you. And when you understand that, then it will become a joy to, to try to keep the rules that he's laid out for us. And obviously, there's a lot of other ways that we struggle, a lot of other ways that we break the rules morally. But because the text is talking about sexuality here, and because I think that that's one of the greatest areas that we struggle with as a culture, I wanted to address that specifically. But it can come out in a lot of different ways, right? If you're a religious person, you may have been faithful to your wife for 20 years, but you struggle with greed. You just struggle with selfishness or bitterness or backbiting. I I don't know what it is that you struggle with, but I want to encourage you again, because God is the one that's going to satisfy your soul. You don't need to break his rules to satisfy your soul in other ways. You You can trust him. Now, Again, attitude, what does that look like? We have a congregation where people come here from all different backgrounds. If, if you're here and you're struggling with homosexuality or you're shacking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, we're, we're glad you're here. And we want to lovingly encourage you to meet Jesus, to know that he loves you, and then begin to live according to his rules. Amen. Because we think that's best for you. Because we love you. Amen. So we're glad you're here. You're welcome here. Um, but following Christ means saying... Christ is my Savior, and I'm going to begin to put those things behind me. It's not overnight. It's not like that. All of a sudden, we just follow all the rules. We all, that are followers of Christ, struggle. We, we keep tripping. We're, we're trying. We're learning together in community. But you can't be a follower of Christ. This is going to be the controversial thing here. You can't be a follower of Christ and say, my identity is in breaking his rules. That, that means you're following that other thing you're following. You're not following Christ. And so I just want to challenge you with that this morning. We want to implore you that he's the one you should follow. Amen. He's going to satisfy your soul. So we're glad you're here. We want you here. We want to keep the conversation going. Let's talk about it more. We, we are all strugglers. 1 Corinthians 5 says that we don't judge the world for how they live. We judge those that call themselves followers of Christ. And not in a judgmental way, but we say if you're a follower of Christ... The goal is to follow what he says. But if you're not a follower of Christ, we're not going to judge you. We understand you're, you're doing your own thing. But we want to invite you to follow him. We want to invite you to follow him. He, he loves you. He loves you more than you love yourself. The last thing I want us to look at is, is the new rule that he gives here. And I know we're running a little late, so I'm going to kind of press through this and encourage you to read the rest of uh, John 4 on your own uh, later. But what we see here is there's this kind of paradox here that that affection, that satisfaction that we find in Jesus then transforms our life so that we become like him as well. We become a messenger of his satisfaction. We become someone who then shares that love with other people. Uh, Once we recognize that he's the only one that can satisfy our souls, we're going to start sharing that with others. If you've ever had a, a, a child that's getting into trouble, sometimes if you have a toddler, you'll distract them with something. Have you ever done that before? Yeah? Everybody's like, of course, yeah. Um, Here's a little kid looking at an iPhone, right? 
And I shared this earlier, uh, just a little point of confession. Those of us that have older kids, we do judge those of you that use iPhones to entertain your kids. Um, but we only do that because we're, we we're jealous, because we didn't have that back when our kids were toddlers. You know, we had to creatively find new items to distract them with all the time. You know, like, here's this toy, and here's these keys. And, um, so anyway, sometimes you really got to do it. I mean, I would recommend you a little parenting advice. Don't do it all the time, right? But sometimes, especially if your kid's going to get into something dangerous, like, yeah, it's better to distract your child with something fun than, than let them do something dangerous, right? You know, like knives going into the plug, distract them, pull them away. You don't want them to hurt themselves. And there's this Puritan writer named Thomas Chalmers that describes this concept, and he calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. And so the idea is that the affection that we have for something pushes out the affection that we had for something else, right? So it's the expulsive power of a new affection. I've read much of it. It's really hard to read, but I'll just summarize it for you. The idea is that uh, Jesus is such a glorious affection that it pushes out our love for these other things, right? And and so as we uh, fall in love with Jesus it will lessen our desire for these other things. As I said, overnight, you're not going to just have all your desires to break rules and just go out the window. It's not going to just automatically disappear. But the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more that you see him as the satisfier of your soul, it's going to expel these other things. It's going to press those things out. He's going to give you a love for the things that he loves. In Matthew 13, we have this picture of the kingdom being like a treasure in a field. So Jesus describes it this way. He says, a man found a treasure in the field. He was so excited about that treasure, he went back, sold everything he had, sold his car, sold his house. I know they didn't have cars back then, right? But he sold everything he had to get the money to buy the field because the treasure had become the best treasure he could possibly have. And, and that's what Jesus should be for us. If we're a follower of Jesus, we're saying Jesus is the best treasure and I'm willing, I'm willing to throw out the other stuff in pursuit of him because he is the greatest affection now of my heart. And I'm just going to summarize the rest of what we see going on in John 4, this new rule. Um, in John 13, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. And in John 4, Jesus is talking to his disciples, my food is to do the Father's will. There's this new joy that comes into our life that presses out our selfish desires for other things and begins to make us the kind of people that actually love others. We start to look a little bit like Jesus. We start to have sacrificial lives. We start to love others and step outside of ourselves uh, to give ourselves to other people the way that Jesus did that for us, leaving the comforts of heaven, becoming a man, living the perfect life we couldn't live, and dying in our place. And so my final invitation to you would, would just be to come to the living water of Jesus. Come to him no matter where you are. If you're a religious person that has been following Jesus for 20 years, but now you're beginning to struggle with pride because you, you think you're such a great rule keeper, come back to Jesus as the only one that could satisfy your soul. And if you're struggling with the claims of Christ, like, does this even make sense? Just focus on Jesus. Focus on him, the God who gave himself for you. No other religion, no other faith, no other thing you could trust in is that beautiful and that satisfying. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we thank you that you gave yourself for us and I pray that you would teach us to satisfy ourselves in you. God, give us a compassion for each other as we struggle with other temptations. God, help us to lovingly engage friends that don't believe the same things that we do and to love them. Be friends, to share our own need and our own brokenness with them. 
just as we saw Jesus asking for a drink of water. Help us also to point people to the living water. Help us to satisfy ourselves in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I, I don't know if I mentioned this. I think I mentioned the other service, but we also have a lot of extra resources we want to share with you. Those didn't come in in time, but we've got a lot of booklets on issues of sexuality uh, and how that interacts with the Christian faith. And so those will all be available next week. They'll probably come in Monday or Tuesday. God bless you. You may be dismissed.